the Lord is risen. Well, we try that again because from Albania to Zimbabwe to Iran to Indonesia, believers are repeating this ancient creed. So we'll try it again. The Lord is risen. This is the greatest news, and it forms the greatest day in all history. And the good news that I have to proclaim to you this morning, and I'm so thankful for you, for CLC, and for our global church around the world celebrating Jesus, uh, the greatest news and the greatest day in history proclaims one who is alive today and who is able to change absolutely anybody's future. That's the glory of Easter. It is a history that is focused on one person who lives today, Jesus Christ, who is able to change forever our future in a glorious way. Do you believe that this morning? (laughs) That's the Easter message. And we're going to look at the testimony in John's gospel. I love John's gospel. I don't know whether you have felt that we've all come through this season of suffering from COVID and others. Sometimes preachers preach about those who've had losses or broken hearts. I think we've all had losses and broken hearts. When you look at the last three years, and John was someone who knew this. He was recruited by Jesus somewhere between the ages of 14 years old and 18. And he's the oldest living disciple. And by the time he pens the fourth gospel, all of his peers have died. They've been martyred, all the apostles. I believe by the time he writes these eyewitness testimonies, the apostle Paul has been beheaded. Not only that, John has seen, if you want to talk about loss, faith standing in the midst of loss, John saw Israel demolished. He saw even the temple, stone upon stone, removed, and he saw the Roman army surround Jerusalem and um, starve out the city and, and, and they even waited until the Passover. So there were 700,000 pilgrims who were also, their lives who were snuffed out. And, and John is even exiled. Um, he's not martyred, but he's in a sense made to be the senior last apostle uh, on the Isle of Patmos. And he's seen such horrible suffering. And yet John can say at the beginning of the gospel, the light shines and the darkness cannot overwhelm it. And he gives to us the precious eyewitness testimony in John chapter 20. And this is going to be the text that I'm going to proclaim the greatest news the world has ever known from of that first Easter. And we're going to focus on the first witness, the one that all four gospels say was the first one to the tomb, the last one at the cross and the first one at the tomb, uh, Mary Magdalene. So hear and follow along as I read to you the word of God from John 20. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth 
was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken the Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's turn to God once more. Father, we thank you for these eyewitness words. They're more than eyewitness words. They're your very inspired word. And we pray you would speak to all of our hearts, infuse them with faith, and breathe new faith in the life of many hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the greatest day in history. It proclaims and centers on one who lives today who is able to change anyone's future. But it did not look like the greatest day in history when it dawned. <laughs> uh, especially not, it did not look like the greatest day in history to any of Jesus' devoted followers. I like these words of Bob Goff. He says, darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost, but heaven started counting to three. <laughs> but the counting had not yet emerged. In the words of S.M. Lockridge, great African-American preacher, he said this, the Pharisees couldn't stop him, but they found out, they, they, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses could not get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. But they did not know that yet. And so Easter dawned as a day of the bleakest loss and the blackest kind of despair. And John pairs it down. We know there were, were women there carrying spices, the original Spice Girls, you might say. <laughs> um, but John pairs it down to one believer. He wants us to feel the despair and say, the church is down to the point where it only has one member. And, and she comes, if you can even say she's a believer, she's a lone believer uh, in John's account. She's a lone pilgrim. She's moving in darkness toward the dawn of the central meaning of all hope and light in history. 
I think John wants us to see that without Mary Magdalene, the apostles are simply a, a celebrate recovery group for unbelievers. <laughs> They're just, the apostles have become a support group for unbelief. Jesus' enemies had more expectation of his resurrection than did his friends at this point. His enemies had heard Jesus say again and again, uh, you know, tear down this body and I'll raise it up in three days. And so they posted a guard. They didn't want any mischief at the tomb. But his, his friends had lost all faith. And so Mary comes. Uh, she comes with raw, searing, and smothering grief. She comes expecting to see the tomb. She comes expecting to mourn on solid ground. Instead, she finds the earth begin to shake beneath her feet. She comes expecting to see bloody grave clothes. And instead, she sees the glistening white robe of the angel who says, I know you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Why look for the living among the dead? She comes expecting to hear silence of the tomb, but instead she hears her name spoken by the most significant person she has ever known. She comes to care for a lifeless corpse, and instead she embraces a fully alive Christ. Her name is Magdalene, and she's differentiated from a number of the other Marys, but there have been wrong ideas attached to her in all kinds of history. It, it, some of the mischief started in the ninth century with Pope Gregory made an honest mistake that preachers can make. He conflated two different Marys. He conflated her with the, the woman who led a, a publicly notorious sinful life of a prostitute. But that's nowhere in Scripture said of Mary. All we know about her is this, that she was part of Jesus' financial benefactor team. Luke chapter 8, 2 says that uh, with Joanna, the governor's wife, and Mary Magdalene and others, they, they supported Jesus financially. She was a successful businesswoman. But we also read that she had been delivered from seven demons. Would have at least made her uh, look like someone who was emotionally unstable. Uh, and yet... All the gospel accounts tell us that she was the first to see Jesus in the new era. She was the first to ever dialogue with the resurrected, with a resurrected anybody that had his full resurrection life and body on. And in this passage, she is the first to be commissioned. Jesus actually commissions her to go and proclaim the good news to the apostles. She fulfills the two requirements of the apostles that they see the risen Lord and that they be commissioned to proclaim his message. I don't think it's an accident that the women are the first. Um, in the ancient Near East, there was a kind of misogyny that did not allow women to even give testimony in a courtroom. And I think here in the New Testament, we find God is saying, that is done, that is over, that is not of God's economy in the new creation, the old paradigm of patriarchy and condescension and male primacy gives way to equality and the unity of all people. Thomas Aquinas called Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. Again, without her, James, uh, John and Peter don't race to the tomb. And uh, Jerome in the fourth century said, Magdalene 
may have been called Magdalene, not because uh, of what we commonly think, that there were areas called Magdala, uh, where there were mountains, but that Magdala was a slang nickname. You know, Jesus liked to give his apostles nicknames, especially if they had common names. So with Cephas, he called him Peter the Rock. Or with James and John, very common names, right? He called them the sons of thunder. I love Jesus' nicknames because they're kind of uplifting. <laughs> they, they point to some kind of strength or something. And do you know that the word Magdala means tower of strength? Some people think that she may have been a tall woman, but there were so many Marys, he wanted to differentiate. Uh, or maybe in good humor, she was a very short woman, and Jesus said, you were a tower. You were a force of strength. But at any rate, every time we find her in the Gospels, she is overflowing with attributes of strength, power, dignity, and stick to perseverance. And it's her report as she goes to the tomb and she sees that the stone, the seal is broken. The guards, the Roman guards are gone. Uh, and, uh, in, and she is alarmed and she just takes her word back to Peter and John. Failing Peter is with John, who was abiding at the cross. Beautiful picture of fellowship. And she goes and takes him this word. And, and so she gets Peter and John to lace up their Asics running shoes and run to the tomb. And um, this is a whole other sermon. We'll do this another year. But, but they, they look in the tomb, and they are brought to faith by, by an, an amazing thing that they see. They see that the expensive Egyptian shroud that, that John 19 mentions that Joseph of Arimathea with his wealth bought uh, to cover the body of Jesus, it's there, but the body is gone. Who would steal a body but not steal that precious price, uh, high-priced cloth? But beyond that, they see that the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and the wrappings around the body of Jesus, they're all there like a chrysalis, like a cocoon, uh, and, and it's as though the body of Jesus, Michael Green, scholar, says this, it was like the body of Jesus, the solid body of Jesus, vaporized through and left the chrysalis of the wrappings there. And to just add a little style to this, uh, and kids, you may not like this, but um, what we're going to find is that even the head cloth wrapped around Jesus' head was folded up Neatly, It's like Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he made his bed. <laughs> and, and it didn't, so it just didn't add up that somehow some thieves broke in and stole the body. I mean, what thieves will break into your house and empty the dishwasher and run the vacuum and take something? Um, this is not, you know, this is not Marie Kondo saying that we're bringing joy to the world by tidying up everything and getting rid of things that don't spark joy in us, right? Um, this is... Uh, it, this brought them to faith. But they don't come to faith apart from Magdalene, who brings this word to them. But I want to point your attention is one of the most masterful and moving dialogues in all the history of the world. This dialogue between the risen Christ and Mary Magdalene. And it begins at verse 11. And, and we see in verse 11, she's outside the tomb, and she's weeping. And it, when it says that Mary stood outside the tomb, in the original, it speaks of her taking her stand. Talk about a tower of strength. And she's outside the tomb crying. Now, she was weeping before, and the angels, 
They said to her, why are you weeping? What are you looking for? Jesus speaks even more tenderly. I think the angels are not rebuking her, by the way. I think the angels recognize that part of their charge from God is to be concerned for the things that break our hearts. And so when the angels confront Mary's tears, they know that their job is to be ministering spirits to comfort, to comfort the image bearers of God. And so they come say, why are you weeping? What are you looking for? Jesus comes with the same tenderness. But he changes it, the question, to what, from what are you looking for to who are you looking for? And we read that she is prevented from seeing that it is Jesus. We don't know exactly why she's prevented from seeing it is Jesus. Um, it could be her swollen eyes from the tears and her swollen heart. It could be the early morning hour and the shaded garden ambiance. Or it could simply be that nobody at this, at this point expected to be talking to a resurrected person. Or it could be what Luke 24 tells us, where the two on the Emmaus road were prevented from being able to recognize Jesus uh, through the flesh. And so God chose to weaken her eyes so that she would not discern it by sight until she had recognized it by faith. But at any rate, Jesus asked this tender question, who are you looking for? And she responds uh, saying that someone put my Lord somewhere. Now, this is not resurrection faith, but I want you to see, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? The, the depression of this day would have been that everything they were hoping for and banking for had now been dashed because Jesus was horrifically humiliated. He was a subject of the Roman torture by crucifixion that was designed to make an example uh, of anyone the Romans wanted to put down. And so how can you say Jesus is Lord if someone put him somewhere? If someone puts someone somewhere, they are not your Lord, right? I think the answer is very tender. That Mary could not, though though she could not understand how Jesus could be the Lord God of history and be put somewhere, she could not dispose of him because she had never experienced the love like she felt from this one who had so loved her so perfectly. And so she was bought, brought to the tomb, not by a faith in the resurrected Lord, but simply the, the grasp of his love. And she... A Magdalene's faith is simply this. She says, show me where they put him so I can get him. I want to get as close to Jesus as I can get. That's, that's what brings her there. And then we read in this, this dialogue of words, and again, she's losing it. She's in desperation to get close to Jesus. And this is Jesus' most brief and most powerful sermon in one word, one word, three syllables he says Miriam and he changes and rocks her world this dialogue is like a dance and we read that Jesus says her name Miriam and she is at word twirls the, the, the word is that she turns around and it's like her whole world on its axis change um, I love how John begins his gospel by presenting God as this, this force and power in the universe 
that is like this poet whose words have power to bring into being what is not into being. Um, This sense that we ourselves and every living thing is but a poem and that there is a poet behind the world whose name is God, who not only speaks the world into being, but speaks life into it so that we might resend ourselves as a remade poem spoken back to the maker. That's what John says when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And here he, she hears the word from the one who had made her, who had loved her, who had now uh, suffered all the sins that separated her from God. And in Jesus' briefest, most powerful sermon in three syllables, he says, her name <laughs> And it resonates, and again, she turns on her axis, and the God who said, let light shine out of darkness in Genesis, has spoken her name and has shown in her heart to show her the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus' face. This is the power of Jesus. The divine poet whose words have a magical generative power uh, to change us. And one word from Jesus heard as your name changes your life forever. One word, one look. Dear friends, this is what Jesus has been doing ever since around the world, speaking the names of people as the resurrected, life-giving Lord. It's how I came to know him. I was minding my own business doing a high school term paper on the burial cloth of Jesus. It was just a topic I thought was interesting. And I remember reading an article in the sacred publication of Rolling Stone magazine, of all things. (laughs) And that magazine article was a description, and it didn't really take a side on the Shroud of Turin. I'm not really sure exactly what I think about that incredible, uh, beautiful cloth like the burial cloth of Jesus with this like radiated image of a crucified man but it simply was an article that talked about what it was like to undergo crucifixion and all of a sudden my vague generic general idea is that yeah there's probably a God who made things it broke through and absolutely spoke my name and I found myself like the next thing I knew as I felt God personally encountering me is I was on the floor, literally. And I don't think, I, in a sense, I have ever got up since that I, through the power of Jesus speaking our name, claiming us in love, we're changed. And every conversion to Jesus, in a sense, is that kind of conversion of a personal God where we hear him say our name and our B.C. turns to A.D., our before Christ turns to the version of our lives after his death, deep, deep in our soul. And if we hear his name, we pivot. Our whole world turns around on its axis and our world shifts from facing a hopeless end to being secured in an endless hope. Mary heard this. Have you heard him say your name in his resurrected power? Uh, John Wesley described it this way in his great hymn. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
That's the power of the resurrected Christ. And he is saying your name. He is speaking your name. And he is asking for the return that Mary gave. She pivoted on her feet and she said, you are my teacher. All of my ideas, all of my conceptions, all of it falls at your feet, Lord. I am under you. And in that moment, Mary found that death was vincible and hope was invincible. Death is now vulnerable and hope is invulnerable. Death is now conquerable and hope is inconquerable. He spoke her name. And she finds herself on the floor. There is no meeting in any history like it. And yet this is what Jesus reproduces again and again and again. And she is on the floor grasping his feet. She, we aren't even told of her next move in verse 17. It's just like he speaks her name. She speaks as she falls. And he says, don't continue to cling on to me. He doesn't prohibit her from clinging. He's still the same affectionate Jesus. He loves her as, his, as her Lord she loves him as her savior. She understands that in a way she never has. He's still a real affectionate person. But he says there is work to be done to proclaim what he had accomplished. That the world that says it is impossible for a dead person to rise, it's impossible that once a person is dead to uncoagulate the blood, to get the heart pumping, to get the brain waves moving, to get the eyes fluttering and seeing again. The world says it's impossible. Do you know the Bible says of Christ the opposite? It says it was impossible for death to hold him because he was the sinless, innocent, substitute and the power of death is sin and that Jesus though he was saturated with our sin he did not become a sinner he was the perfect innocent the only perfect righteous one to ever undergo the sentence of death so that on the other side of his death God looks at us as though we bore the very innocence of Jesus because he looked at Jesus bearing our guilt, all of our sins, all of our wrongs, all of our failures. And so he says to her, don't continue to cling to me. I've not yet ascended uh, to lead this good news army that I'm sending out to all the earth. He says, and then he gives her the commission. He says, I want you to go. Go instead. And who does he say for her to go to? He elevates the disciples who he should have called miserable failures. <laughs> He doesn't say, go to those miserable failures. <laughs> go to those who, I should, who, who should be uh, the dunces of all spiritual capital. They sat in the front row seat for Jesus for three years, and they didn't get it. He doesn't call them, and he doesn't even simply say servants. That would have been an incredible thing to call them servants of his. Uh, in the upper room, he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. But he says to them in grace... In the grace that he won on the cross, he says, go tell my brothers. There is no recrimination in the kingdom of God. Jesus has forgiven fully so he may commission us. And by the way, you cannot be a commissioned servant unless you know that you have been infinitely forgiven. <laughs> you will come off as a smug and condescending witness unless you know that you have received that by being on the floor of repentance. And so he, he restores them. Um, this is the greatest amnesty the world has ever known. 
I, I remember I think I was, I was in third grade and I had kept a book from the library and after a period of three weeks, I think it was something like a nickel of day that you would have a fine. And I had kept that book from its overdue date of September 30th till June 1st. And it was a fortune. It was more than I got uh, for helping to mow my own yard. And so I kept it. That was around 1973. I kept it for 1974. I kept it in 1975. And in 1976, the library declared amnesty. I'm sure there was a debate. Is this going to encourage reckless library book abuse? But I saw it as a tremendous opportunity. And I marched that book into the librarian's office. And I knew that I was free from all fines. Now, I did get a lecture and a condescending look and kind of made to feel ashamed. But I was free of all fine. I want to tell you, in Jesus, the amnesty of his cross, not only did he bear your fine, but there is no lecture. He doesn't give his apostles a lecture. He doesn't say, where were you? Didn't I tell you? There's no recrimination in the kingdom of God because we're all on the same level. We're all miserable failures, but he, Hebrews 2 says, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He is not ashamed to welcome us back. He's the older brother who can't wait for the younger brother to come back and says, here is my inheritance for you. That's Jesus. And he comes forgiving us because only forgiven people can be on mission and so we read that Mary Magdalene, the first one to have dialogue with the risen Lord, the first one to see him, the first one to ever talk to a resurrected person, is now commissioned by Jesus to go instruct his apostles and regather the troops, marshal the troops again with the news. They are now regarded by Jesus as his brothers and part of a force under his ascended power. Friends, that is the news of the gospel. And it welcomes all of us back as we are. Don't clean yourself up. Don't try to make yourself presentable because Jesus has done the unthinkable. He has borne it all, not part of it. Have you received it? It's what makes this the greatest news the world has ever heard. Somebody once compared Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, to John Wesley, and I love what he said. He said, uh, they may preach the gospel better than I do, but they cannot preach a better gospel. <laughs> they cannot preach a better gospel. It would be silly. Charles Spurgeon, yes, better preacher than you and me, but he did not preach a better gospel than what we have to preach it is the news that breaks our chains. It is the news that ushers in the new era, the first fruits of what God is going to do in all the universe that will be reconciled to him. If we will have it, we can be reconciled, renewed, and we can be in this life a, like a model home of the new colony of homes and reality that God is bringing, that through Jesus, through Jesus God is defining and filling out what the very word God means. He is the God who makes all things new. 
And I'm going to give the invitation clearly and loudly that Jesus longs. Whether you're a believer who has fallen back and feels like your faith has faded, Jesus says, come back. No recrimination. Amnesty for all. Or whether you're a first-time person who has never yet come, Jesus calls you to receive, to exercise faith, which is simply like the hand of a beggar who receives a contribution, like the mouth of a hungry person who receives the food. Jesus calls you to decide, to make the decision to believe. I love the words of Billy Graham. He, he said this, he said, I wasn't the, Billy Graham says this of himself. He says, I wasn't the greatest teacher or even the greatest preacher, but he says, I do think God gave me a great ability to speak the invitation of Christ. The invitation of Jesus to come for one and all. And Billy Graham says this, he said this, he said, I want to give an invitation to decide today. To decide today and to decide now. And then he, write, he said these words. He says, and not to decide is a dangerous thing because not to decide to believe and drop the baggage of your sin and turn to God. He says, not to decide is to decide not to. There is no neutrality. You either come to God now and decide to come or you're deciding no. And if you decide not to decide, you often decide never to decide and you lock yourself into the fatalism of time, and time is never, ever our friend. And when we decide not to, we're really deciding no, and we can get stuck there in not deciding, and God would invite us now to come in faith, to look through the windshield of the scriptures and look through uh, the windshield of our reality and to see Christ and to turn to him. And Jesus would say, you can drop all of your baggage. Jesus comes in his words of life. He comes speaking our names and he wants us to drop our baggage. He doesn't want anybody to, who has come here with heavy baggage to leave bearing it. He says, drop it. Leave your sins, your failures, even your doubts and your questions. Doubt your doubts. Question your questions and receive the living Christ. All it takes is to receive. And John puts it this way. He says, there are so many things Jesus did that if he were to record them, the libraries of the world could not contain them. But he says, these things are written by the power of the Spirit that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not the kind of life that expires when God hushes the beating of our hearts and our brainwaves cease, but a life that endures that Jesus himself is not just a new bounce in our step, but he's the step in our life that will endure forever and ever. And it's so simple. All you must do is lay your own deeds and doings down and stand at Jesus' feet and receive his completed work. And it says, to all who received him, even to those who believed on his name, he gave the power to become the very children of God. Because Jesus is alive, death need not be our end. Your, your debts are paid. The best is yet to come. Jesus is alive, and love has won. And God invites one and all. I want to close 
And I was just thinking about, you know, there's often pressure on a preacher on Easter, and I was talking to some friends who preach, and I said, there's no pressure on us because you know what? The greatest Easter sermon maybe by human preachers was preached in AD 400 by a fellow named John Chrysostom. Uh, He was called the Golden Tongue Preacher. (laughs) And I want to just read you some. His sermon's only six minutes long. Maybe some of us could learn from that. Um, but, But his sermon has such incredible image and such invitation. I want you to hear this earthly preacher, John Chrysostom's invitation. He says this. He says, Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, for your forgiveness has risen from the dead and from the grave. Let no one here fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted of his flesh. And he writes these words. He says, Hell took a body and discovered God. (laughs) They had a tiger by the tail, right? (laughs) It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of all of its dead. For Christ has risen from the dead to become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever and ever. Do you know this? You know the good news of the greatest day in history is about the single person of Jesus. And through his power... He gives us life. Not something we receive after we die, but something that we walk in right now so that our earthly death in some way, I like this is what Dallas Willard says, if you're a believer in Christ, and and Dallas Willard died a few years ago, he said, I wonder if when I die, I will even know it. Because I am so uh, wrapped up in the continuous walk of the life I have in Jesus Christ that death is really simply as walking down this step. I hardly perceive it because I'm still embraced in the life of Christ. If you know Christ, in all the changing shadows, the losses, the crosses, the griefs, the things that we have to bear, Jesus says this will be for you Even though you die, yet shall you live if I am your resurrection and your life. Let us pray. Oh, our great God, we celebrate you this day. This day in history proclaims to us all has been done by the God who infinitely loves us. And Father, I pray that you would grant ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might walk in the irrepressible joy of this. For those of us who walked in here knowing you, may our joy, our confidence, be all that more irrepressible. I pray this news would ricochet out of this place through irrepressible lives. And we pray, Lord, for those who hear this word and have not yet made the decision, have not yet decided that today would be that day of decision coming to you, receiving Christ in his certainty and glory and living a new way of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Yeah. Our worship can't end. It must be expressed to continue. One more time. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. We have prayers at the front. If you've come to a special turning point in your life, we'd love to pray with you. So don't leave without telling someone or letting us know that. But now lift up your hearts to your God. And I want to pronounce this. I'm going to Hebrews 13.20 you. <laughs> this great benediction about the resurrection. And so receive this and lift up your hearts to your God. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.